And this lesson is entitled Ezra and His Commission, that, to give you a review in case you haven't been in here. For four weeks now, we've been teaching on what's called post-exile Israel. That means Israel after their exile into Babylonian slavery. If you've missed any lessons, I'd encourage you to go back and get them. Somebody who really helps me proof these, she was telling me this morning, she said, Pastor, I've had trouble following it, proofing your stuff. And I said, well, that doesn't hurt my feelings. And it doesn't surprise me because this is something we've never been taught before. This is something we've never studied before. And so when something's brand new, it's so much information, it might make your head go tilt. But that's why we've also slowed down to try to review every time. So just in a quick review, Israel was a nation, you know that. They had lots of kings, you know that. Saul was the first, then King David, then King Solomon, but Solomon got dirty. And God judged him, and God said, I'm stripping the kingdom from you. But because your father, David, was my servant, I'll leave you one tribe, Judah. And then maybe some Benjamin. So they had a little bit of uh, Judah and Benjamin. That became known as the Southern Kingdom, the tribe of the kingdom of Judah. And then there was the Northern Kingdom called Israel. So from Solomon, after Solomon, the kingdom was divided into two kingdoms, the Northern Kingdom and the Southern Kingdom called Israel, called Judah. Judah had its kings, Israel had its kings. All of Israel's kings were wicked and perverted, and they led the people into slavery, spiritually speaking, idolatry, demon worship, and that was them for about 200-something years, 270 years or so. The southern kingdom of Judah had several good kings, not many, but a handful. Uh, they both had 20 kings. Israel had 20 kings. Judah had 20 kings. Israel's kings were a lot shorter term because they were so dirty they'd be killed or literally stabbed in the back or overthrown. Judah, because they had better kings, their kings had longer tours of duty. But in the end, God's people, the Israelites, eventually all rebelled against him. And because of their sin, God prophesied it over and over and over again that if you don't repent, you are toast. If you don't repent, you are toast. And they would always just play games with God like many Christians do. And for literally dozens and scores and even hundreds of years, the prophet said, get your life straight or you are done for. And because it took so long to come to pass, nobody believed it. But because Israel, the northern kingdom, was the dirtier, they got to go into slavery first. And the Assyrian Empire came down and wore them out and slaughtered them, hundreds and hundreds and thousands of them, if not a, a few million of them. And then who was left was taken away as slaves into Assyria to the north. And there the Israelites intermarried with foreigners and totally dissolved their heritage. There were a few handful of weak and poor people that were left in Israel, and the Assyrian kings, many names there, Pul, Asurbanipal, all these guys, they had the brilliant philosophy of when you conquer a land so that there's never any patriotism to ever rise up again, bring in foreigners and let them intermarry, you'll dissolve the culture and you'll have a brand new thing of your liking. And that's what they did. They brought in all these foreigners from, from Babylon, from the north, from weird nations that they had previously conquered, and they colonized Israel with foreigners. And the people who were left in Israel were such weak believers who had followed Baal and Ashtaroth and all these pagan gods for so long, they didn't have a problem marrying the pretty pagan. And in doing so, they produced a new breed of people called Samaritans, half-breeds. And that was the end of northern Israel. Well, Southern kingdom now, Judah, was a lot holier and cleaner. Their last good king was Josiah. And because of that, they, they marched on for another 120 years. And yet they didn't repent. And after Josiah did the best he could, the kings after him were filthy. Uh, even um, 
Hezekiah, even Hezekiah was a little dirty. And so eventually their, their tr judgment came and it came from Babylon and a famous king named Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar was sent by God to discipline, punish, and judge Israel. And he came in three waves. Every 10 years, he'd come and to see basically by the hand of God, had Judah repented or not. And every 10 years, he'd find have not. And he would fight them, massacre them, and take 10 or 15,000 Jews off to Babylon as slaves. That went on for 30 years. And you think the dumb believers would get the clue. No, you know, all it takes is six months and you're settled back into your old way of doing things. They didn't have the Holy Spirit back then like we do. And after six months, we with the Holy Spirit settled back into our old way of doing things. So that's what happened to Judah. Babylon came through Nebuchadnezzar and he just, he was, they were his pinata for 30 years. He just beat on them and take them slaves, beat on them, take them slaves to where there was nothing left in Jerusalem. And the last round, he said, fine, I'm tired of fooling with you. He probably said, I know how God feels. He said, and he just torched the whole city, tore the temple down, burned the city walls, devastated Jerusalem. There was nothing left. And anybody that was left was taken away as a slave to Babylon, which is modern day Baghdad, Iraq. And so, uh, but to fulfill prophecy, Jerusalem was less, left desolate. And Babylon or the Babylonian empire was never in the habit of repopulating its defeated territories like the Assyrians had been hundreds of years prior. Now think about it. Their two captivities were 120 something years, 150 years apart. So we have a big discrepancy in time or just a big lag in time. So uh, the Assyrian empire has petered out, but the Babylonian empire has been raised up. That brings us into the exile. For 70 years, they were slaves in per well, Babylon, and then it became Persia. Another empire rolls around. And this is something that takes a long time. That's why we as Americans, we can't fancy ourselves anything special. We're just another little empire that will rise and fall. And this little brief time of history in the Bible, you're dealing with three empires. And to God, they're nothing. Bab uh, Assyrians, then Babylonians, then Persians, then Medo-Persian. Then you had Alexander the Great and the Roman Empire, the Greeks. There's nothing to God. America will rise and fall, so don't get all haughty and we're all that. Well, we could be if we wanted to be, but I don't think we want to be. I think you and I want to be, but I think generally speaking, the American people don't want to be. So anyway, 70 years a slave, 70 years property of Nebuchadnezzar. But then comes a king named Cyrus, who's Persian. And after 70 years, he defeats Nebuchadnezzar, overthrows the Babylonian empire and takes possession of all of Babylon's slaves and territory. And yet he finds himself in the scriptures prophesied 150 years prior, actually before he was born, 180 years before he did this, that God said in Isaiah, my anointed shepherd Cyrus will let my people go. And Cyrus said, that's me. All right, I make a decree. All you Jews go home and obey your God and build him a house. It's a shame when a pagan king has to tell you how to go serve God. What a slap in the face. Now, I'm sure they wanted to, and I'm sure they were mindful of the scriptures that seven, in fact, Daniel was praying about it. He found in Jeremiah the prophet that 70 years were appointed to his people, and it came to pass. 
So that's, now we're talking about post-exile. Everything we've just said in the last three minutes leads up to what we're dealing with now, post-exile. After Cyrus decreed the Jews can go home, you're no longer property, you're no longer slaves, go home, go home. That's what they did. And Zerubbabel was the first to lead a, a, a remnant back home, and he led about 50,000. He spent 13 years preparing for the trip and 13 years preparing to build the temple. And then after 13 years, from the day Cyrus made the decree to the day they marched out of Shushan and Persia, 13 years. That's a lot of preparation. We hear from God and we want to jump tomorrow. We hear from God and we want to start stealing people away today. In fact, some ministers, they get called to a place and they're just, they just can't wait to get out of there. So, you, so while you're here, you can't wait to get out of here. Therefore, you get nothing from here. Therefore, truthfully, you'll never go anywhere. Amen. We'll say that again. Some ministers, some people, they feel called to a church, but they can't stand being there and they can't stand the people that are there. Therefore, they don't want to be there. Therefore, they get nothing from there. Therefore, they go nowhere. But Zerubbabel had a holy decree and he, he was the governor of, of Judah and the king commissioned him and he spent 13 years preparing, 13 years. I think about the Scudders, they were in preparation here 17 years. Some folks think they're called and tomorrow they should be an apostle. We even know from uh, the book of Acts that Paul spent at least 14 years in preparation. So why are we in such a hurry? The thing we've proven over and over again with these, these long time spans is that God is in no hurry. And we might even point out there's still no Messiah on the horizon where we're at in history. He's still 500 years off here. Jesus, 500 years away. And yet he is the crux of all of time. He is the apex. He's the center of all of history. And yet God's not even concerned with the Messiah, yet he's dealing with people on an individual basis in the now. So why are we in such a hurry? We have to be faithful over the now. It may be that God has you in a place you don't like just to get you to like it. And as long as you don't like it, you get to stay there till you pass the test. Amen. So Zerubbabel, that brought us to Ezra. Now I need to move on because we do have four and a half pages of lessons. So this brings us to Ezra. Ezra was about 50 years after Zerubbabel. He's 58 years after Zerubbabel completed his temple, the second temple. Remember the first temple, Solomon's temple was totally wiped out. And the biggest thing God said is, I want my house built. So Zerubbabel leads his men. They go and build a house. It was much smaller in scale. It wasn't as grand. Didn't have the gold, didn't have the money. And some of the old timers wept when they saw it. They said, oh my gosh, it's so small and so puny. What a horrible sight. To which we pointed out, you old timers, don't you remember you're the reason it got destroyed the first time? You're the reason you're a slave. You're the reason you're having to build the second one. So why are you complaining? Just be thankful you're still breathing air. Instead of being so judgmental, maybe if you'd have done your job, you old timer, we wouldn't have a smaller second temple. We'd still have the first temple. At least that's what Jeremiah said. The prophet and the priest are profane and they've profaned my people. It was the old timer's fault. The young generation was just excited. God wanted to use them. They didn't have any predisposition as to how God would use them. They were just happy God wanted to use them. So brings us up to Ezra and his commission. As previously covered after nearly 80 years of Persian kings, 
And after 70 years of a reconstruction revival in Jerusalem, the Jews had lost favor with the king. We covered that last week. After 80 years of Persian kings, along comes a king named Artaxerxes, Persian. This is the first king in 80 years who opposes the Jews. Every other king either didn't care or gave them money and the commands to help. But this is the first king that says, tell them to stop and use whatever means necessary because this isn't right. For the first time since King Cyrus, a king was ordering the Jews to stop construction on Jerusalem. Ezra, who was in Shushan in Persia, he inquired of the same king, Artaxerxes, that's the king that issued this command, if he might be permitted to travel to Jerusalem to make inquiry of the status of the people according to the law of God. And here's the verse, Ezra 7, 14. For as much as thou art sent of the king and of his seven counselors to inquire Judah and Jerusalem according to the law of thy God, which is in thy hand. Basically what he's saying is, I want to go judge my people according to the Bible. When it says inquire of the people according to the law of God, he's going to basically go judge them and see where are they not in line with the law. So he's judgmental. And God authorized the commission. He said, "What I want to go judge my people according to the law of God. That's his inquiry. That's the main thing he wanted. He wanted to go find out what's happening in Jerusalem to make this king turn his back on us. What have we done to lose favor? And so much of the time, we want to blame everybody else. The, the teacher's against me. The boss is against me. You've got to ask yourself, what did you do to violate the word of God to cause the teacher to turn their back on you or to cause the professor or to cause the boss. What did you do to, to fall out of favor? Because when you're, the Bible says when your ways please the Lord, he'll make even his, your enemies to be at peace with you. We are so quick to blame everybody but ourselves. That's just the selfish nature of mankind. But Ezra was a priest and a scribe and he knew if something has failed, it's not God. God is not a liar. And anybody that says he is, be careful you're fellowshipping with familiar spirits. Well, if God doesn't do this, he's a liar. Careful there. You don't know God well enough to make that statement. You're a little ant. I want to use the term piss ant, but that sounds offensive. But a piss ant is actually, it's a real biological term. It's not being vulgar. P-I-S-S -S ant, a piss ant. It sounds dirty, but it's not dirty. It's a real ant. It's the little, little, little bitty one. And that's who you are in comparison to God. Well, because a lot of folks get cocky and arrogant. The word of faith taught us to be cocky towards God. Well, if God doesn't do this, he's a liar. You're a pissant. <laughs> the Bible says, come, let us reason together. Put me in remembrance. It doesn't say, come and call me a liar. Come, let us reason together. That's the only thing you have a right to go and do with God. Reason. And don't forget, he is God and you are a pissant. Well, if God doesn't keep his word, he's a liar. When has God ever not kept his word? And who taught you that kind of arrogance? Put me in remembrance of my word. That's what you have permission to do. Lord, you said. If, if any of our children sass you the way you sass God, would you give them a hug and say, oh, you're so right? Or would you beat them within an inch of their life? <laughs> maybe not an inch, maybe a mile. Amen. So we have to be careful this arrogance that the word of fake stuff taught us. God is God. He doesn't lie. 
Why are you, what do you listen to to question his integrity? If he ever lied, you wouldn't be breathing right now. We wouldn't exist. And yet we want to shake our feet. God's a liar. You sound just like the demons. You sound just like the atheists. You sound like just like the heathen. If he doesn't do this, he's a liar. What are you fellowshipping with? I've never called God a liar. I've never shook my fist and said, Lord, if you don't do this, you're a liar. Ezra, he, he had a little bit more reverence for God than a bunch of us word of faith Americans. He said, something's gone wrong. It's not God. His word is true. I would like to go judge these people. It's a good place to start is judging the people. The post-exile revival had faltered halfway to completion and would need a handle to guide, need a hand to guide it along. Ezra wanted to travel to Jerusalem to investigate where the people were failing God. He knew that if the prophecies of God were not coming to pass as they once were, it would not be because of God's inability to perform, but rather man's unwillingness to do the word. That's the motivation. I want to go judge my people. If something's failing in your life, go judge yourself. Judge your life. If your marriage isn't healthy, don't blame God. If your finances aren't right, don't blame God. If your health isn't right, don't blame God. Judge yourself. Why does God always get the black eye? Don't you remember there's a devil and then there's flesh and then there's you, the flesh and the devil working together against God? How come God always gets blamed for everything? So let's look at Ezra's qualifications. It appears God chose Ezra out of all the available priests because of his heart. Ezra 7.10, for Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach in Israel statutes and judgments. So this is a good thing, a good round of qualifiers to see how to be used of God. His qualification was threefold. Number one, he prepared his heart to seek the law, or we could say the word of God. Number two, he prepared his heart not just to know it, but to do it. We harp on that a lot around here. Don't just know the word. Do the word. Set your heart to do it. It's one thing to be a know-it-all. It's one thing to listen to all the tapes and buy all the books. It's another thing to do everything you know. And as well as we've been taught in this 21st century, we don't do everything we've been taught. We could probably spend a lot more time doing and a lot less time wanting to know. Nothing wrong with wanting to know and nothing wrong with knowledge, but it's the doing of the word that sets you free, not just the knowing. Some people, they just live their whole Christian life in between their ears. You want to know why your life squanders and fails and flounders? It's because you live your whole Christian walk up here. The Christian walk is not lived out in your head. It's lived out in your body, in your life. It's lived out day to day. It's not lived out in the ethereal realm of spooky, spooky. It's lived out feet on the ground, moving the earth through prayer, through evangelism, through having a healthy marriage and a healthy work ethic and serving in the local church and witnessing to people and loving on folks and forgiving. Amen. Number three, he prepared his heart to teach the law of the Lord. So you don't just know it, you do it, and then you prepare your heart to also teach others. That's part of that discipleship call. We're called to make disciples. When you teach folks, part of the word to teach means to disciple. So it's not enough to know and do. You've also got to be able to reproduce yourself and other people. He had prepared his heart. Hopefully we're preparing our heart. He saw the need in Israel and he prepared his heart to be the one God would use. He's the only one that went to the king to get permission. Can you imagine your king does not like the Jews 
and you're going to go to your king to ask if you can travel away from him to go check on these people he does not like. That takes some, some, uh, some confidence, some courage, some gall. But apparently Jerusalem and the word was more real to him than the king's intimidation. And I wonder if we have that kind of audacity in us to do what needs to be done in time of need. He saw the need in Israel and he prepared his heart to be the one God would use. He prepared his heart to teach in Israel. We might could add this. He's the one that God used because he's the only one that had the courage to face the king. He's the only one that went up and asked the king for permission. How come there weren't a whole line of priests? How come there weren't a whole line of scribes? How come only one guy went to the king's door and went, ding dong, can I have permission to go see what's going on in Jerusalem? Why, why, weren't, why wasn't the whole priesthood concerned? Why weren't all the preachers concerned? Just, just one. But then again, it only takes one. He prepared his heart to teach in Israel the statutes and judgments. He did not prepare his heart to stay in Persia. He prepared his heart to go. And we've got to be preparing our heart to go, do whatever God's called us to do. Now, and here's the thing to balance you as a Christian. If your heart just wants to go, you got to prepare to stay. Be convinced you may never leave this church. But if you're terrified of leaving this church, you got to prepare your heart that God may send you somewhere overseas, far, far away. We'll never see you again. He might do it soon. You've got to do whatever your heart doesn't want to do. You've got to overcome any fear, any insecurity. That's, not, that's what we do as Christians. We don't, we don't succumb to fear. We don't lay in bed and pull the sheets over our head and tremble and quiver. No, whenever you've got fear crop up, that becomes your new enemy. And you do whatever it takes to whip it. And whatever you don't want to do, that's what you do because your flesh doesn't want to do it. As Dr. Summerall taught, most folks, their flesh is king. Their soul is a servant and their spirit man's a slave. And as long as you succumb to any fleshy fear, that's, that's the way you're running your life. You want to make sure your spirit man is king and your flesh is a slave and you drag that flesh wherever it needs to go. And you remind the slave, I own you and you obey me, so get up and go work out. Get up and tithe. Get up and balance the checkbook. Get up and be early. Turn that thing off. That's how we're supposed to live. All right, the commission. This is teaching a lot broader than I thought it would. We are pastoring, if you hadn't noticed, trying to fix people. The commission. All these people had a commission. You don't just go and do something. A lot of folks dream up their mission. Voices tell them their mission. Uh, he was commissioned. He had a heart to help. He had a heart for people. And when he had a heart for people, then he got commissioned. A lot of folks want to dream up their purpose in life. But if your purpose in life doesn't evolve or involve people, then it's a vain, useless purpose. We're here to help people. We're here to serve one another. We're here to be disciple makers. We're here to win the lost. We're here to live for people. Whether you like their skin color, their accent, their socioeconomic background or not, we're here for people. Ezra cared about people and he wanted to figure out what was going on with his people. Here's the commission. Ezra's commission to return to Jerusalem came from King Artaxerxes. Ezra approached King Artaxerxes concerning his trip to Jerusalem. This is different from Zerubbabel's journey, which was initiated by King Cyrus. I know these are names and this is a lot of historicity for you, but King Cyrus was the first Persian king. He told Zerubbabel, go build your God a temple. 
That's different than Ezra asking King Artaxerxes, can I go? And the king saying, all right, you can. See the, you see the difference? One, the king initiated. The other, the man of God initiated. But both of them were authorized by the king. Ezra 7, 6. This Ezra went up from Babylon, and he was a ready scribe in the law of Moses, which the, law, the Lord God of Israel had given him. And the king granted him all his requests. The king granted him all his requests. When your requests are selfless, the king will grant them to you. When your requests are selfless. Now, that's not what the word of fake movement taught us. The word of fake movement taught us to write our own check with God. In fact, there's a little handbook out there called How to Write Your Own Check with God. I was talking with Dr. Barclay, and Dr. Barclay said, I'll tell you, because he's been around a long time, he said, I'll tell you where the movement of the word of faith went sour. He said, when a man of God, a great man of God, wrote a dumb little book called How to Write Your Own Check with God. I've read the thing. I have it. You don't write your own check with God. Dr. Barkley and I, were, went, last time he was here, we were fellowshipping over at Starbucks, and we were just talking about the selfishness that has crept into our, our church movement, how we want to boss God around. He said, I'll tell you exactly when it entered in. When this little book called How to Write Your Own Check with God was written, he said, I understand the heart of it, but it perverted the body of Christ. We began to make God our genie. You don't write the checks. That violates all scripture. God writes the checks, and then you're the errand boy that delivers them. James, that's a New Testament author. Did you know that? He was an apostle. I think he trumps anybody in the, in the 21st century because he was inspired of God to write scripture. And he said, go to now you that say today or tomorrow we will go into such a city and abide there year and buy and sell and get gain. What you ought to say is if God wills, we will go into such a city, abide there, you're buying, selling again. He said, all such boasting is sin. James trumped the message of that little booklet. But we threw, we, we trumped that gospel, or the epistle of James, because we appreciated the prophet of God that wrote that book. It's a man-written book, whereas the scriptures are God-breathed. Now, I understand what the little booklet's trying to communicate, but you don't write your own check with God. I'm not doing anything I ever chose to do. And I'm not doing anything I ever dreamed of doing. But I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. We as Americans, we are very susceptible to perversion and money. And so it just fe it conveniently feeds our American flesh. I can write my own check with God. When your motives are selfish, God will shut you down. But he will give you your desire when it's selfless. When your ways please the Lord, he will give you your heart's desire. That's what the uh, Psalm says. All right, since you, you don't like that, and you don't agree with that, since I'm not as big as the man that wrote that little booklet, I read all of his books. I used to like that one until my pastor corrected me. That's why I have a pastor, though. All right, look at Ezra 7, 14b, 23, 25, 26, page 18. We got to move quick. Here's what he, he desired, to inquire concerning Judah and Jerusalem according to the law of thy God which is in thy hand and to carry the silver and gold whatsoever is commanded by the God of heaven. Let it be diligently done for the house of the God of heaven. And thou, Ezra, after the wisdom of thy God that is in your hand, set magistrates and judges which may judge all the people that are beyond the river. He's gonna be permitted to judge people? That's mean. All such as know the laws of, the, of thy God and teach ye them that know not them. 
And whosoever will not do the law of thy God and the law of the king, let judgment be executed speedily upon him, whether it be unto death or to banishment, banishment or to confiscation of goods or to imprisonment. So that is his commission. We have it summarized here with these bullet points. Ezra's commission was not a construction project. That was Zerubbabel's commission. Ezra didn't build anything. His commission was based on his own request from the king. His commission was sixfold. So here's his, his commission. To inquire of the spiritual conditions of Jerusalem and Judah. Now, hopefully, don't just take this as history. Realize which, with the whole title of this is How to Build Revival. You've got to always be judging the spiritual conditions of a church, the spiritual condition of your home, the spiritual condition of your family, the spiritual condition of your Sunday school, the spiritual condition of, of, of your roommates. You've got to do this. This is what he was anointed and called to do, to judge the spiritual conditions. We've taught you how to do that around here. This builds revival. If we take your temperature and you're too cold, we're going to breathe fire on you. We have to be able to take your spiritual temperature. To carry a massive offering to Jerusalem. That was actually seemed to be Artaxerxes' idea because it was all his money. But he also, Ezra probably said, I need to check on the temple and I need to do what God tells me to do with the temple. And apparently Xerxes, Artaxerxes said, well, how much is that going to cost? Well, this is what it requires. And Xerxes, Artaxerxes said, well, here you go to check on and maintain the house of God. The temple had been uh, completed for about 58 years, but what's the condition of it? Nobody's heard. To appoint magistrates and judges. You gotta have that in a good local church. Leadership, elders, deacons, folks that can help steer and use governments. To teach the law of Moses. You gotta maintain revival with good teaching. And the law of Moses is all about do's and don'ts. It's holiness. Right now, all we're being taught for the most part in America is how to feel good and how to prosper and make money and how to have your best year ever and your best Tuesday afternoon ever and, and how every day can be a Friday and how you're, gosh darn it, people like you. We're not be, being taught, do, do this and don't do that. Because that's hard and that's condemning. And, and who cares if the New Testament has 1,250 commandments? Let's tiptoe around them and talk about how you're gonna get your blessing on. And his sixth commission was execute judgment. If you didn't do the word of God after we taught you, the king said, kill them, banish them, imprison them, or take away their goods. That was the king's God-ordained sovereign authority to, to this priest. If they won't obey the law of your God, kill them. Well, I don't know about that, king, but I appreciate half the power. But of course, then Moses did authorize people to be stoned. We do not know what year the, the commission actually came in, but we do know that he and his remnant left for Israel in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. Just as Zerubbabel prepared for 13 years, we can safely assume that Ezra also spent some time preparing for his mission. Probably two years, maybe three. Again, why are we in such a haste? I just can't wait to get out of here. You sound like Peter. I've not touched anything unclean. Some of us are a little arrogant. We think we're better than this region. My calling is to raise this region. You have to love it to raise it. You don't raise a kid you don't love. Some of you think you're better than this region. You are this region. <laughs> we're not better than this region. Think of this region as just a mission field. 
Uh, you, you want to talk about going to Africa, the Scudders have been robbed more than we've been robbed. But they love those people. They talk funny in Africa. We talk funny here. They're poor in Africa. We're poor here. They're backwards in Africa. We're backwards here. They have dirty politicians in Africa. We have dirty politicians here. The only thing different is they're a little bit hotter and dustier and a little bit darker. You just think you're better. The willing servants. Ezra's group totaled 1,754. This included 1,496 general people, 38 Levites, 220 uh, temple servants. The families of Ezra's return trip are listed in Ezra uh, 8. Every family from Ezra's group, from Farash to Bigvi, uh, is also found in Ezra 2 as members of Zerubbabel's trip. So think about that. The same families produced new missionaries. Every family that went with Ezra was also present with Zerubbabel. This demonstrates that not every exiled family member chose to return to Jerusalem with Zerubbabel. So some of these families went, but members stayed behind. And then after 80 years, they thought, well, boy, we missed out. Wish we could get with God again. And God gave them another opportunity. It also indicates not every member went with Ezra's group. So apparently they still left people behind there. Some still chose to stay behind. These willing servants would be needed to help carry the offering presented by the Jews, the king, and his chief officials 900 miles across the desert. This offering included 25 tons of silver, three and three quarters tons of silver items, three and three quarter tons of gold, 19 pounds of bowls. I guess apparently that was important. Really? That's a lot of Tupperware. These were for the temple use. <laughs> but it does say uh, uh, 20 bowls of, of the specific weight, 19 pounds of bowls. That's a lot of detail the Bible includes. 19 pounds of bowls and two stems of polished brass, the Bible says, is equal value to gold. This offering was for use in the house of God at Jerusalem by providing this offering. This is a really cool thing. By providing this offering, King Artaxerxes assured himself a place in Scripture as a benefactor to the house of God as listed in Ezra 6.14. The Bible talks about Cyrus, the Bible talks about Darius, and the Bible says Artaxerxes. All three of these men financed the temple. Coincidentally enough, this second temple, whose glory Haggai prophesied would be greater than Solomon's temple, was almost completely financed by Gentile kings. Think about that juxtaposition. Solomon's temple was financed by King David. And it, it was the marvel of the world before, after, and since. But this second temple, much smaller, meager, measly, but yet the prophet of God said the glory of this second temple will far surpass Solomon's temple, nearly 100% financed by Gentiles. Why is that? It would later be enlarged and added onto by another Gentile king, Herod. It was called Herod's temple by the time Jesus Christ walked into it, and that was its greater glory. The greater glory that that temple saw was Jesus Christ. Solomon's temple never saw Jesus Christ. But I think it's very fitting that God would use Gentiles to build a temple that the Savior of the world would see. Because he's not just the savior of the Jews, he's the savior of the Gentiles also. Plus, it really humbled the Jews to realize they had to trust Gentiles who they thought they were so much better than. Just like we think we're so much better than the lost, this region. 
a little too big for your britches. Amen. Ezra being a high priest was more faith, were more mindful of spiritual reforms in the law than he was building walls and temples or walls and buildings. He therefore had a keen eye to take with him Levites and Nethanims. Uh, that's the temple servants. They had to be coaxed into going. How come the preachers always got to be coaxed? The Levites and the Nethanims would be critical to effectively reinstituting the law and proper worship at the second temple. One can only speculate why they would have chosen to remain in exile, for there was no temple in Persia in which to be a priest. How come, he says, I'm going back to Israel, we got a new temple. And the priests who were supposed to be in the temple say, I think we'll stay here in Persia. Well, your calling is to be in a temple, there's no temple in Persia. Your calling is to win the loss, there's no lost in your home. We're called to get out and do something. One can only speculate why they would want to stay behind. The 900-mile journey from Shushan, Persia, to Jerusalem was uneventful, but required a three-day rest. On the fourth day, the treasures were accounted for and reweighed. Offerings were made to the Lord, and the orders from King Artaxerxes were delivered to his lieutenants and governors. Just kind of giving you a chronology of what happened with Ezra. So let's come to the opposition now. Ezra's main purpose was to investigate the spiritual condition of Jerusalem, Judah, and her inhabitants. What Ezra discovered was unconscionable. He wanted to go find out what's going on there that we would lose favor with Artaxerxes, that he would order the move of God to stop. You got problems when God wants something to move, but his ordained king says you can't. Ezra 9, 1 and 2. Now, when these things were done, the princes came to me saying, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites, and listen carefully here because I'm going to show you how you kill the move of God, have not separated themselves from the people of the lands doing according to their abominations, even of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken of their daughters for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy seed have mingled themselves with the people of those lands. Yes, the hand of the princes and rulers have been chief in this trespass. The reason they lost favor with Artaxerxes is they were dirty. The reason they killed the revival was filth. That's how you do it every time. You and I get dirty. You and I get lukewarm. You and I bring in a little bit of ice cube to our hot boiling fire for God. And we justify it. We watch a little dirty movie here. We watch a little dirty sitcom there. We, we back off our prayer. We back off our, our study time. We start fellowshipping with heathen. We start running with the heathen. And before long, you've totally quenched the move of God. And so now you're so cold, the Lord starts opposing you and it comes down his chains of command. That's what he found. This is what Christians do all the time. They start mixing their Christian walk with the world. And it's what we've been teaching on for several weeks, syncretism. Trying to synchronize your Christian walk with the world. You cannot synchronize your Christian walk with the world. You'll always be 25 steps behind. What we're commissioned to do by the Lord's prayer is pray thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth just like it is in heaven. We are to synchronize the world to heaven. We do that through preaching. We do that through evangelism. We do that through prayer. We make the world line up to us. We don't serve God as the world permits us. We serve God and we make the world serve God too. Through prayer, through evangelism. Obviously, you can't make the world do anything. It doesn't want to. But notice, they had cooled off. They had gone back to the very first sins of their very first forefathers straight out of Egypt. The very first thing God commanded them to do in the beginning, that's what they began to do, not to do in the beginning. 
In less than 60 years, the Jews at Jerusalem had fallen away from God. The leaders had led the, the way back into syncretism, the very sin that marched them off into Babylon slavery. This is what we're watching in the body of Christ right now. We're watching our Christian leaders lead churches into syncretism. Whether it's Joseph Prince the heretic teaching hyper grace, whether it's the whole word of fake prosperity thing, teaching the body of Christ to chase money. We're watching this filth march the church into its own destruction. The, the elders or the, the rulers said it's the chief princes and it's the rulers and the Levites that have led the people in this. The princes and rulers have been chief. The priests and the Levites are dirty. Every form of leadership in the, we would say the church at Jerusalem was dirty. So the Lord had to go back to slavery to find somebody that was still clean. Apparently nobody in Jerusalem was clean. Nobody in Jerusalem walked with God enough to start a revival there. He, God had to go get somebody from the outside and bring them in. It is a very strong chance Ezra had never even been born in Jerusalem. He was probably born in captivity had never even seen Jerusalem before, only heard about it. He was born a Persian, but he was a scribe of God. We have to make sure that we stick with the word, we resist the world, we resist dirty people, we resist the sins that want to buffet us. We all have uh, our own set of familiar sin. I'm not going to go sin Jeff's sin. Jeff's not going to sin my sin. Our sin or is our sin. That's what we're familiar with. That's what you always fall into. These Israelites fell into their same old sin. As the proverb says, the dog always returns to its vomit. They weren't going to go make up new sin. Not when this one had been so well beaten for them and such a, a wonderful highway to destruction. Why would we go pioneer something else? We're too lazy to pioneer new sin. We're just going to take the downward slope that we've been riding for so long. Syncretism, I got the definition there again. The attempted reconciliation or union, attempted, doesn't mean it'll be successful, of different or opposing principles, practices, or parties, as in religion, cultures, or philosophies, and I've added just simply the term compromise. How many of us compromise? All right, the sin of the Samaritans had effectively crept into Jerusalem and succeeded in getting many of the Jews to intermarry with the surrounding heathen. Notice the phrase, the holy seed have mingled themselves. This phrase reveals the real reason for the constant attack against the Jews. All demonic opposition has one motivation, and that is to render the word of God void. God, you're a liar. Yeah. If you've ever said that, you should repent and judge yourself to see how immature you really are. If you've ever said, God's a liar, if he doesn't do this, he's a liar, judge yourself because that's immaturity. That, that's, that's an adult temper tantrum. God is no liar. If you haven't learned that by now, you need to go back through Christianity 101. God cannot lie. The Bible teaches us that over and over and over again. Now, maybe that spirit you're listening to did, the lying spirit, the familiar one, Satan, the father of lies, he lied from the beginning. Now, he's a liar, but don't mistake Satan for God. And if you do, you don't know the voice of your shepherd. Then you should pray John 10. My sheep know my voice and the voice of a stranger they'll not listen to. Maybe you should pray that. Several rounds of opposition were against the construction of the second temple because God said it would be rebuilt. When these attacks failed, a new tactic was used. If the Jews couldn't be stopped by force, then they could be hindered by perversion. This is the doctrine of Balaam. 
That's been around for several thousands of years. If you can't resist the church, make it dirty. God himself will resist the church. The church is unstoppable when the church is clean. You're unstoppable when you're clean. When you get dirty, God himself will resist you. He'll stop you. So why does the devil try to resist you when he can just get you to do what you want to do, which is sin, and when you do what you want to do, which is sin, God himself will do the devil's work. Not that God does the devil's work, but you see what I'm saying. The devil wants you stopped. He can't stop you because you're clean, but he can tempt you, and you get dirty, and God will resist you. You get dirty enough, you'll die. Game over. That's the doctrine of Balaam. Balaam could not curse Israel, but Balaam taught Balak how to teach Israel to sin and put a stumbling block before them. And the Bible tells us when they did that, God himself destroyed Israel. Balaam couldn't destroy Israel. Balak couldn't destroy Israel. But when Balak took the counsel of Balaam to pervert Israel, then God himself destroyed Israel. Mission accomplished. Still working today. If you're clean and holy, you're unstoppable. You get dirty, you slow down. You get really dirty, you slug. You get filthy, filthy, you'll come to a dead standstill. You get dirty enough, the wages of sin is death. Still a Bible promise. You can't curse God's people when they are holy, but get them to pervert themselves and God himself will resist and even destroy them. This tactic, tactic is successful. If successful, would accomplish two things. Number one, God would destroy his own people as he had been ought to do numerous times in the past. Jude even reminds us of that. And number two, the holy seed would be so defiled that the Messiah would not be able to be born into the earth. That's what this is all about. You get the Jews at Jerusalem to intermarry, there'll be no pure bloodline in the tribe of Judah through which this Savior can be born. Don't forget that Zerubbabel was the great-grandfather of Jesus Christ. Luke and Matthew tell us that. Pervert Zerubbabel's lineage through intermarrying, and there would be no pure bloodline for Christ to be born. We pervert you, Christ can't flow through you. The devil perverts you, God can't move through you. The devil slugs you down with the things you like, Christ can't come through you. And if the devil could succeed in perverting the bloodline of Judah, Judah and Zerubbabel, Christ would not be able to come through that bloodline. That was the work all along. That was the ultimate plan all along. It's always been the plan to stop Jesus Christ, stop the word of God anywhere possible. That's why the, these lessons are so critical for us to understand how to build revival. And once you build it, maintain the thing. Ezra had found the problem, syncretism. With King Artaxerxes' decree against Jerusalem, Israel had begun to see the hand of God resist them yet again, and something would have to be done. Dun, dun, dun. To be continued next Sunday morning. Father, I thank you for these lessons on Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah, on revival, on syncretism. Father, I know this is a lot of information. Father, I pray that these people would have a spirit of quick understanding, that the spirit of the Lord would rest upon them, the spirit of wisdom and knowledge, and that they would have quick understanding in all these things, understand the implication and the impact this has on our lives and as our family as a church and what you're wanting to do here. Father, these lessons are written, these scriptures are written for our admonition and for our benefit. Father, I thank you this word does not return unto you void, but it affects and accomplishes what you purpose in our life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.